Hey guys, this is Megan Rawlings, and you are listening to the Talk Bible to Me podcast presented by The Bold Movement. Hey there, and welcome back to season three of the Talk Bible to Me podcast. I'm so excited that you're here to study the book of Philippians with me, and if you're new to our podcast, welcome. I'm so glad you found us. Go ahead and grab a Bible and we can study together. But if you're driving or something else where your hands are not available, don't worry about it. I will read it to you. Real quick, I want to let you know that this podcast is an extension of the Bold Movement, which is a ministry that trains women to boldly step into their role in the kingdom of God. There are tons of free resources on the website, as well as Bible studies that not only teach you scripture, but also how to study it and podcast episodes just like this one. This is all designed to help you grow in your faith and find your role and purpose. You can visit our website at www.theboldmovement.com. Today's episode is presented by listeners like you who have committed to supporting the Bold Movement through our Patreon page. Those supporters are mentioned later on, and you can be one too. Just visit www.patreon.com forward slash the Bold Movement. Okay, sis, here's how we work. We're going to read a verse or two of scripture, and then we will pause to work through it and discuss what it means. I will name the resources we are using, as well as post them on the website so you can familiarize yourself with them too. With that being said, let's study Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Today, I'm going to be reading from the New Test, sorry, the New Living Translation. It is in the New Testament, <laughs> often referred to as the NLT. Verse 1. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Okay, I'm going to stop here because there are a few things I want to talk about with this first part of verse 1. You may know that Paul was Saul, and some have preached that there was a name change when he converted to Christianity. There's actually not a lot of evidence of this theory. In reality, most scholars agree that Paul and Saul were the same just said differently based on the language people spoke and their culture. So this is basically the same name, just from different areas. According to Peter O'Brien, Paulos, Paul in Greek, is the name used by the apostle in the Hellenistic Roman world in place of the Jewish name Saul. Does that make sense? Email us or contact us on social media and let us know what you think about Paul and Saul, and show us how you came to that conclusion. Now let's talk about Timothy, the other guy at the beginning of this letter. Good old Timothy traveled with Paul and was mentioned in quite a few of quite a few of his letters: Second Corinthians, Colossians, Philemon, First Thessalonians, and Second Thessalonians. Later in this letter, we learned that the Philippians have a special attachment with Timothy, and we address this, and we will learn about it more in chapter 2. So finally, I want to talk about the last part of the sentence when Paul calls himself and Timothy slaves of Christ Jesus. In his commentary on Philippians, Gordon Fee said to be sure the institution of slavery in iniquity was a far cry from the racial slavery that blighted American society and the English society that made it possible by the slave trade. Even so, the slave in the Roman Empire was not a free person, but belonged to another. So what I want to do is dive into this just a little deeper because the word doulos, or slave, holds a lot of weight. This phrase is lost on us in translation, and I want it to be more clear here what Paul is saying. 
Most translations in the English language sometimes refer to this word as a servant instead of slave. However, this seems to take the significance out of the word. In Paul's day, a slave was owned legally by someone and had no freedom outside of what their owner allowed. This concept was understood among the church in Philippi as some of the members were slaves and some could have possibly owned slaves. So Paul uses this idea as a metaphor for his allegiance and sacrifice to Jesus. I do want to give a better understanding of slavery during this time, though. As stated earlier, slavery was very different than what was happening in America during the 19th century. In her commentary on Philippians, Lynn Kohick said, Ancient Israel practiced slavery, and the Old Testament includes numerous stories about it. One of the most famous slaves is Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, Abraham's first son. Recall, too, Israel's enslavement in Egypt, the defining moment in their history when God delivered them out of Egypt, the land of slavery, and brought them to the land he had promised. Thus, as key points in Israel's history, slavery played a role. But later, Israelites owned other Israelites or Gentiles who were enslaved through wars or to pay debts. Laws established appropriate treatment of slaves and restricted abuse. God's people were to release fellow slaves in the seventh year of their enslavement. In addition, in the Old Testament, the term slavery and slave are used metaphorically, often translated as the servant of the Lord. Such a person had divine authority from God to speak and act on his behalf. For example, Numbers 12.7 speaks of his servant slave, Moses, who was faithful in God's house and to whom God spoke face to face. Drawing on the Exodus narrative, Israel understood itself as God's slave, based on the exclusive covenant that Israel's God had established on Mount Sinai. Like a slave, Israel was to obey their God in all things, especially by rejecting idolatry. Okay, now that we've dissected the first part of verse 1, let's continue with the second part. I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. Holy people can also be translated as saints. Kohig said, Our modern understanding of the term carries a sense of human perfection preserved in stained glass windows, a far cry from our average existence. The Old Testament tells us that a holy nation or a holy people are those who keep God's commandments. In the second century, the church started a process of how to become a saint for both the Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. Kohik says they define a saint as one who has demonstrated extraordinary piety, such as Mother Teresa, or attributed to him or her miracles based on the intercession before God. Do not confuse second century sainthood with the way Paul terms the members of the church in Philippi. Notice that at the end of the verse, Paul includes church leaders and deacons. Church leaders here come from the Greek word episkopos, Because I want you to really understand this, I'm going to quote Peter O'Brien. He says, Episcopos in classical and Septuagint Greek from Homer on, which means, uh, what was that, 500 BC maybe? That could be totally wrong. Don't quote me on that. (laughs) When it was used here, it meant an overseer and was used to describe a deity. As the one who keeps watch over a country or people. The title was also given to men who held responsible positions in the state, including those with judicial functions, counselors, treasurers, and military strategists who were overseers of religious communities, such as temple officials. 
This one word describes a variety of offices and functions, although the notion of oversight appears to have become common to all of them. At Qumran, the overseer or supervisor was regarded as the shepherd and spiritual father of the community. Although not a priest, he knew the law and was responsible for all decisions about the camp and the full members. He also controlled the community's welfare funds. Some writers have argued that the title corresponds literally to the Greek, episkopos, and might have been the model for the New Testament overseer. The word group was less common in the New Testament and in the Septuagint, with episkopos occurring five times on four occasions. Um, Oh, sorry, on five times. And then different versions. uh, Man, this is getting nerdy, guys. Episcope on four occasions. Episcopomai 11 times. And episcopeo once. And basically, those are just different endings, but we won't get into that. The Ephesian elders who meet Paul at Mildus are called episcopoi. And according to H.W. Byer, there are a def- definite circle of members from the settled congregation who are in regular leaders. The qualifications required for this office are spelled out in the pastoral uh, epistles at 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.7. Although the exact nature of the work performed by Episcopoi is not mentioned, at the heart of it lies the ministry of oversight, supervision, or protective care. The climatic Use of this title occurs at 1 Peter 2.25, where Jesus is described as the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The word deacon comes from the... Okay, now we're switching gears. <laughs> the word deacon comes from the Greek word dia, diakonos. This is often associated with someone who is who serves. In the early church, these were the folks who ministered to the sick and shut in. They helped take care of the day-to-day stuff so that the elders or the teacher-preachers could study and prepare their messages. These two positions are addressed with the rest of the members in the church of Philippi. So, now that we have finished verse 1, let's move on to the next 10 verses. (laughs) I'm just kidding. They won't all be that in-depth. There was just so much in that first verse. Verse 2. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. If you will remember, Philippi is under Roman authority, right? So Paul is declaring Jesus as Lord, which is probably in response to the culture of this day, claiming that the Roman emperor, probably Nero, was Lord. This is a pretty big deal at this time. Okay, ladies, I know we're only on verse 2, but we're going to make a lot of headway in these next nine verses, I promise. However, before we move on to the rest of our passage today, we have a quick message from our sponsor. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a message from our sponsors. We are able to continue podcast episodes like this because of our Patreon supporters, Jerry Lewis, Kelsey Graff, Soyan Barber, Julia Carter, Amy Mathis, Jill Walters, and Dave Hansel. If you like what you hear, would you consider becoming a partner of the Bold Movement? Our plans range from $5 a month to $50 a month with exciting incentives for growing Christian women. Just visit www.patreon.com forward slash the bulb movement now back to the show listen sis you can get your name read off too if you join our patreon supporters and become a financial supporter of this podcast and ministry we hope you will consider doing this for our ministry and we hope that you will commit to praying for us um as we try to teach people more about the word of god (laughs) all right let's go ahead and get back to philippians 
Verse 3. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. This part of Philippians is the Thanksgiving paragraph. And remember that Paul and the members of the church in Philippi have a close relationship for years at this point. Notice he says he thanks God every time he thinks of them. I recently heard a clinical psychologist say that your brain is incapable of experiencing fear or anxiety when it is experiencing gratitude. We'll talk more in depth about this later on in Philippians, but I want you to keep that nugget of truth in your back pocket. When we are grateful and give our thanks to God, even over simple things like knowing special people in our lives, we're not allowing room for things that are not of God. Name your blessings out loud. Let your head hear your heart. Let me say that again. Let your head hear your heart. This is literally the way God wired us. Okay, ladies, time for a fun fact. But if you get confused easily, don't pay attention to this part, okay? (laughs) According to D.A. Carson, the NIV reads, I thank my God every time I remember you. But others suggest, I thank my God every time you remember me or something similar. The original language is ambiguous. Lynn Kohick mentions the very same thing in her commentaries on Philippians 2. Nonetheless, as stated here, the original language is ambiguous, but something that is not is the word used for thanks in Philippians. Peter O'Brien says, certainly the English word thanksgiving is rather more limited in its range of meaning since it normally denotes the expression of gratitude for personal benefits received and is that extent rather man-centered. But this sort of notion does not fit Paul's language, for as here he regularly gives thanks for graces wrought in the lives of others by God, particularly those within the church, churches of the Gentile mission. The final part of this section says, And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. This passage is very popular and used on thank you cards. I'm sure you've heard that before. I love it because Paul has such an extreme confidence in these Christians. However, his confidence is not reliant on them or their ability, but rather what God is doing and will continue to do with them. Paul's assurance is found in his knowledge that God works all things out for the good of those who love him, and the Philippians have proven that they do love him. Verse 7. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. Kohik says Paul also underscores his own strong affection toward them. The Greek text literally reads that Paul's affections lie deep in the bowels, not the place most moderns locate their affections. (laughs) But, even if we use a different body part to locate our intense emotions, we can appreciate Paul's sentiment. He wants the Philippians to know that he is sincerely thankful for and appreciative of their unending generosity. This affection is the love of Christ Jesus. No deeper love can a person express than that demonstrated in and through Christ. Such affection creates in Paul a deep yearning for his church, and he is likely alluding to his hope to be reunited with them. The bow thing is true. In the Greek, it's translated bowels. 
But have you ever had a nervous stomach? Have you ever had butterflies in your tummy? This is the reason Paul and most of those in his culture associate emotions with the stomach because that's where we feel things. Isn't that funny? So I guess what I'm saying is my love for you guys is in my bowels. (laughs) No, that was gross. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Okay. Verse 8. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. Most other translations will say something to the tune of God is my witness. Something I find interesting is that some scholars say that Paul claims God is his witness because people during this time were careful to watch out for flatterers. Again, Kohik says, in the ancient world, orders told you what you wanted to hear in order to get what they wanted from you. Food, recommendations, and social advancement. But no one in Paul's day would have been as cavalier with God's name as to bring it forward as a witness if they were lying. Chrysostom asks, Now had he been flattering them, he would not have called God to witness, for this cannot be done without peril. Verse 9. I pray that your love will overflow more and more, and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. 10. For I... want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. Verse 11. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. So up to this point, Paul has addressed that he is constantly praying for the Philippians, right? This is the part where he tells us what he's praying about, and I'm going to bullet these, okay? He prays that one, their love will overflow more and more, and two, they will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. And the reason he prays these, he even tells us, is because he wants them to see what actually matters so that they can live pure and blameless lives. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about praying these things over your closest Christian friends? What would the church as a whole look like if we actually did this? What I'm about to share with you hurt me a little, so if it hurts you too, I'm sorry, but I'm not actually sorry. (laughs) Okay, D.A. Carson dropped this truth bomb on me, and I'm about to drop it on you. For Paul, this is not an idolatrous prayer. For some people, of course, it could become just that. So listen here, okay? For perfectionists, perfection, at least in some arenas where they excel, becomes a kind of fetish, even a large idol. But this is not the case with Paul. The excellence for which he prays for himself and for others is further defined in verse 11. Being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Moreover, none of this will be allowed simply to enhance our reputations. For sad to say, some people are more interested in a reputation for holiness and excellence than in holiness and excellence. Amen. But all such petty alternatives are swept aside in Paul's final constraint. His prayer is offered up to the glory and praise of God. Now it's time for the what now portion of Talk Bible to Me. I'm going to ask you guys another question. What do your prayers look like? Are you only praying a rehearsed mantra before you eat? Are you praying for matters that are mostly removed from gospel interests, as D.I. person would say? Those prayers in and of themselves are not necessarily bad, but if we are only praying about our health, our comfort, our job, our kids, whatever, I think we start to miss the entire point. 
I want you to truly grasp the way of prayers. D.A. Carson asks, but where is our gospel focus? Read through the letters of Paul and copy out his prayers, and I'm going to recommend that you guys do that as well. Ask yourself what it is he asks for. Observe how consistently most of his petitions are gospel-related. Are we being faithful to scripture if most of our petitions are not? But the gospel, oh, put the gospel first. And that means you must put the priorities of the gospel at the center of your prayer life. Thank you for that, D.A. Carson. Okay, sis, that's all I got for you this time. Be sure to tune in next week to study Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. The Bold Movement is a ministry that helps Christian women gain confidence in their biblical literacy, faith, and evangelism through customizable content strategically created to work with our community support to enhance and expand the kingdom of God. I'll be back next week, and I hope you join me. This is just a quick reminder that you can partner with us through our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Bold Movement. Okay, ladies, until next time, go out and be bold.